this is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Last week, um, I was talking to some people after the first service and um, Paige, who's one of our faithful servants here over our children's ministry, um, Brian, one of our elders, his, his wife, she was talking to another uh, young lady in our church named Kylie about kind of the origins of Valentine's Day and just really, really encouraged her. And she came to me after the service. She was like, you need to say that next week. So just for the record, I totally received that, you know, if, uh, if we're planning on stuff to say, like we want to we wanna do the best to, to just invite you in and encourage you in some ways. And so this was something that was really encouraging with today being Valentine's Day, which we're saying happy Valentine's Day to. And specifically, um, we've, got a, we've got a couple in our church that's getting married at the end of this week, Ryan and Ryan Bertram and Hannah Vaughn. Um, so congratulations to that as we commission you in that this week and celebrate that with you. Um, but speaking of marriage, that's a great, that's a great entryway into, into this understanding of Valentine's Day. So around 260 AD in Rome, um, there, was a, there was an emperor named Claudius. And he was trying to build the largest, most powerful army that the world had seen. And in his effort to do that, he was recruiting Roman soldiers um, to sign up for 25 years of military service. And what he was finding out is one of the things that was keeping them from serving or keeping them from their excitement to join the world's most powerful army was their family. And so he actually gave a decree that banned marriage uh, in the Roman Empire. And uh, that just didn't sit well with some of the um, priests that were a part of the church in the Roman Empire because they saw marriage and they saw how it um, glorifies the Lord and displays his character and displays um, his purposes and really displays the gospel. And so one of these priests is a guy named Valentinus. And Valentinus actually, in an act of defiance to the emperor, but in an act of obedience to his savior, um, performed secret marriages, marriage ceremonies, in the church, like church-licensed marriage ceremonies, um, without the emperor finding out, because he believed that marriage was important. It was, it, they, he didn't want, because people were still like doing marriage things, if you kind of catch my drift, but they weren't like living in a covenant. And he was like, this is not good. Like this is not, um, this is not living pleasing to the Lord. And so he would perform these marriage ceremonies and he stood up for what he believed was uh, an act of, of, great submission to his actual king, Jesus, in the face of his emperor king, Claudius. And ultimately, it took him before Claudius, uh, the emperor, and asked of him his life. He was martyred for his stance on the importance um, and the sanctity and the sacredness of marriage. And he stood before Claudius and actually um, invited him into the gospel of Jesus and tried his best to convert him before he was martyred. Uh, and around 8, 269, 270 AD was when his martyrdom took place. I got all this from Voice of the Martyrs. Um, but ironically, actually not ironically, why we call Valentine's Day Valentine's Day, St. Valentine, St. Valentinus, as he was martyred on what was believed to be February the 14th. And so there's your history of Valentine's Day. So it, it is rooted in a, in, a, in a recognition of the sanctity and the sacredness that God um, desires for marriage to broadcast and to display into the world. So yeah, happy Valentine's Day. That's why we're talking about that today. Um, nothing to do with Colossians 1. 
but still really important. So we're in Colossians 1. Um, last week, we were honored to, to talk through the first four verses of Colossians chapter 1. And I just want to give you a quick little highlight, quick little review. Um, a couple things. We were reminded that Paul instructed the church of Colossae that their, um, their home was actually not a geography, but it was a person. It was Jesus. You see this, um, that they, uh, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ, who happened to live in Colossae, that in Christ is our home. And he celebrated the hearing, the actual testimony, the hearing of their faith and love. And in fact, that leaves us with a question that we seek to answer today. And that question is, what motivated the faith and love that was on display in the church uh, of Colossae, in the Colossian church? So we're going to answer that today. So I invite you to stand, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 through 5 and 6, just two verses today that we're going to be unpacking, Colossians 1, 5 and 6. Uh, I'm actually going to start reading in verse 4 because I feel like you need the runway. Um, so please join me in the reading of the word of the Lord. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of the love that you have for the saints, we talked about that last week, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Let's pray this morning. Uh, Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the truth of your word. Um, we thank you for your, your uh, promise that the word, your word, you come to us. You meet us, you find us, you pursue us, um, you chase after us, you run after us. So we, we just want to celebrate that today um, on a day that the the world celebrates um, stories of romance and uh, uh, stories of love like we have the greatest story of love to celebrate today, and that's your pursuit of us. Jesus, we thank you for that. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the reminder um, that it gives us of the hope that we have in heaven that's present for us. Uh, and Jesus, we just pray that um, as we continue to, to proclaim your truth this morning, that your spirit preach a second sermon um, that's more articulate, that's more purpose than anything that would come out of my mouth that meets the hearts of those uh, you have to receive this word today. And Lord, we trust that in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. So I don't find it ironic that we happen, so we happen to be in Colossians 1, 5, and 6 on Valentine's Day. In fact, like we are pretty committed here to just kind of walk through the scriptures a verse at a time. And some people are like, well, what about needing to talk about this topic or needing to talk about that topic or those needing to come up? And we're just like blown away like how many times in just a commitment to the actual text, like those topics come up, like they show up. And so we're here today on Valentine's Day, a day that the, you know, chocolate companies and greeting card companies and all this stuff have tons of slogans about love and romance and yada, yada, yada. And we're here today in a text that really invites us to understand a God that pursues us and finds us and sacrifices for us. I don't find it ironic at all. So we want to answer that first question. Um, what motivated the faith and love from verse 4 that was on display in the Colossian church? What motivated them? We see it clearly because, here's a conjunction there, because of what? The hope laid up for you in heaven. The hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember growing up, um, and I'm a little older than, than maybe the average age in the room, but I remember growing up and standing in line. This was before cell phones. Like, I, like growing up as a kid, like standing in line at the grocery store, I didn't have a cell phone when I was like, you know, six years old. What I had was amazement in the tabloids at the grocery store. 
and some of these just wild stories that you would see. And, uh, and honestly, like every single time I was with my parents at the grocery store and I was in line, there was always a tabloid article about when the world was going to come to an end, you know, and it's like, here it is. Here's the date, you know, like here's the day that it's coming. The Aztecs were right. The Mayans were right. Like Nostradamus was right. Like this is the day that's happening. For those of you that are a fan of the sitcom uh, Parks and Rec, there's like an interaction between, um, between Ron Swanson and a group of people that think the world's going to end. And, you know, it's kind of like a funny, like joking interaction. And, and I just want to tell you that I think sometimes when Christ followers um, really anticipate like the hope of heaven, there's this unfair stereotype that we're people that are like so into the where we're going that we don't really care about where we are. Does that make sense? Like not to, not to fully make the analogy that we're like the Parks and Rec people, but there are stories across church life that I get to hear that are like people that are so convinced that Jesus is coming back or that the world's ending, depending on your flavor there, um, that they like stop paying their house payments, stop paying their car payments, like, you know, stop stewarding the things that they're supposed to be responsible for. And just to be clear, that is not what Paul is arguing. He is not saying, hey, you need to be so confident in the hope that's laid up for you that you stop being a good steward or stop being responsible here on earth. In, in fact, it's just the opposite. I heard a pastor say once that the problem with Christianity today is not that Christians are so in love with heaven and the future hope that they forget to live here. The problem is that we have such little mindfulness and worship of the future glory that we're afforded that we spend the overwhelming majority of our time worried about things like work and money and conflict and drama and stuff that is, that is really just a reality here. We spend an overwhelming amount of our time being motivated by that. And so the point is not um, to be so in love with heaven that we forget life here. The point is to be so in love with heaven that it changes what we're consumed by, what we pursue, and what we, what we really let um, take home in our hearts, in our lives. And so, like, to be clear, like, the goal of Commonwealth City Church, or really any church, hopefully, is not to live in an awareness of your faith because there's this weekly event on your calendar every Sunday that it's like, oh, yeah, church. You know, and, like, listen, I've been in church my whole life. Like, my dad's a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. Like, literally, I can't stay away from the place. You know, like, I've been in church services my entire life. And if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, I'll view those things as, like, something that I need to spur me on or something that I need to, like, kind of reset uh, uh, or, or change the balance of the scales. But I don't want to live in an awareness of my faith because of a worship gathering I attend. I want to live in an awareness of my faith because of the invitation I have daily to belong in the reality of heaven, that my home is already there. Does that make sense? And so actually, when we get into Colossians chapter 3 in a few, well, it'll be months actually before we fully get there, we're going to talk about what it means to live fully understanding the reality of heaven. And so we, we, we keep going because... Why is their faith and love on display because of this? What is Paul referencing to? He says, the faith and love that they have for all people, the Colossian church in verse four, um, happens because they are motivated by the hope laid up for, them in he- up, up for them in heaven. In fact, when you live a life motivated by the hope that you have laid up for you in heaven, what you find out is that faith and love are the currency of the heavenly life. Like you're going to Spin that out. Like, that's going to be how you're known. That's going to be how you're seen. That's going to be how uh, you get to demonstrate the gospel in your day-to-day life is by walking in faith and by walking 
in love. Now, something I want to draw your attention to in the text, this is just kind of sometimes where I nerd out a little bit, but I really like it, uh, is if you have the ESV, which I think is what I, it's what I definitely, what I read from earlier, maybe it was on the screen. It says in verse six, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The problem with that, and I seriously try not to like dog the translation process. Like these guys that translate the scriptures are so, so smarter than me and so, so, so more dedicated than me. But there are other translations, literally like older ones, like NKJV, which is New King James Version, KJV. I think even the NIV, if somebody has it in the room, they can affirm this. That read the verb um, for, for laid up, which is apokomai, and, and it's in present tense. It's a present participle. And actually, the probably better translation is not the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, meaning it's currently there. Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes if I'm not careful, I'll view, I'll view heaven or like kind of the heaven theology as a place that we get to go as opposed to a place that's currently present. Does that make sense? It's currently present. And there are tons of different like streams of thought and have been through church history that that's even, you know, some people even believe that like, oh, like heaven is, heaven is what we all get ushered into when Jesus returns and you know, like that there's, I don't know where the soul goes. It kind of goes in like this soul sleep and stuff. I want to debunk that from my perspective a little bit this morning. It's not like every soul is sleeping. And here's kind of the, the proof text of heaven being a present reality that people are currently living in. Okay. There's a moment in the gospels where, where Jesus goes up on a mountaintop. He takes a little camping trip on a mountaintop with the disciples and he goes up there and there are two people that show up that the disciples didn't know were invited, but God intended to invite. And those people on top of the mountain that met with Jesus and the disciples are Moses, who died a long time ago, and Elijah, right? This is the Mount of Transfiguration, if you know your Gospels. Um, so they show up in person to hang out with Jesus and the disciples. And the disciples are like so overwhelmed by it. They're like, we should build, we should build a town here. We should invite them to stay. We should invite them to live. And so I want you to know that like, where did those people come from if the soul's just hanging out somewhere? Where did Moses and Elijah come from? They came from the presence of of the Lord, which is where they were because of their faith and their hope and and the way that the Lord declared them righteous. They came from the presence of God. That's the ultimate proof text for me that heaven, it's it's an actual present reality. In fact, there there are so many um, phrases that kind of go hand in hand here, but my favorite one throughout church history is the phrase that we live in the already, but also the not yet. Like heaven is already a reality for us. But we are not yet there. We are on the way there, but we're not yet there. So we live in the already not yet. So we need to read this verse through the lens of the hope that is presently laid up for us in heaven. In fact, when we think of the concept of inheritance, right? When we think of the concept of inheritance, inheritance is something that we get when someone dies. You know, if you are named in a will, if you've ever been part of a will or, or something like that, like someone passes away and what is left of their estate gets inherited by living next of kin or by people named in the will. And inheritance is something that comes to us when we die. Well, in fact, inheritance is something in our faith that comes to us when someone died. And that person was Jesus. And the inheritance that we get as Christ followers is the realities of a current, present heaven that we are fully belong to, fully belong to, but yet aren't a part of until we get there, like we're still on the journey. We're already belonging, but not yet there. Um, So where do they get this hope from heaven as we read on in the text? Where do they get, because of this hope laid up for us in heaven, 
Of this you have heard before in the, what's it say? Word of truth. Now, I think we have the tendency to read that and think, oh, they heard this from the Bible. Just to give you a little context, um, when Paul wrote this, there wasn't a Bible yet. There wasn't, they didn't read the Gospel of John, it didn't exist. Um, it wasn't leather bound, it wasn't like an app for them. You know, like they didn't have the Bible to turn to. So, this word of hope that Paul's talking about, what does he mean? He means actual verbal testimony, testifying of who Jesus is. And he says, you've heard of this hope of heaven because it's contagious. And people are experiencing and and understanding the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And they are telling the story of his good news that goes forth from that um, and, and has enough power to save people and to transform people and to invite people to believe. Now, I do want to be careful here. Just because Paul wrote this when the Bible doesn't exist doesn't mean that we need to give more credence to verbal testimony than we do the word of God now. The Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, knew that when I read this in 2021, or when you read this in 2021, that we would have the word of God like this, as opposed to like this, okay? Does that make sense? And so we need to honor this one as the spoken work of God, spoken work of God that's now written down for us. The spoken word now becoming the written word. And so when we write, where do we hear, where do we find this hope that's laid up for us in heaven? We read it, the word of truth. We hear about it. We see it unpacked from Genesis to Revelation for us today. In fact, we're going to get a little more instruction right here, a little more nerding out. Um, Just to let you know, like, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible tells a singular story that all points to Jesus, every bit of it. And in fact, there's this big terminology that's used sometimes when it talks about the, the, the arc, the story arc of the Bible, and it's what's called the meta-narrative, or the big narrative, or the big story, if you want just me to continue to interpret it down. The big story of the scripture, the big narrative, the meta-narrative, is one that has really four parts. It has creation, which we see in Genesis. It has fall, which we also see in Genesis, where sin and brokenness and death enter the world. Then it's this longing for redemption that is personified and actualized and kind of climaxes in the personal work of Jesus, the Redeemer who brings redemption, and then it ends with a hope of restoration and a promise of restoration. So this big story arc of the entire scriptures is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We don't just see that from Genesis to Revelation. We also see that housed in small little stories along the way. We get to see creation. We get to see fall and brokenness. We get to see how the Lord redeems and ultimately how the Lord restores. Uh, And in fact, I want to take a moment to show you how the entire word of God does point to Jesus in four different ways. There's a, uh, a guy that that I regularly read and listen to. His name's Brian Chapel. He's a, he's a pastor and preacher, um, teacher. He's actually a great teacher of preachers. So he's like a professor. Um, and, and he has uh, really four, four words that he says, this is how the entire word of God points to the gospel. He says, first of all, the Bible predicts who Christ will be and what he will do. So the Bible predicts, the word of God predicts who Jesus is and what he'll do. The word of God prepares his people to understand the grace of God, to provide, must, that must provide them redemption. So it prepares the people of God to understand God's grace that's needed to provide redemption for them. The third is as we understand the grace of God, which is key to understanding the purpose of God and the need for Christ, then we see in the scriptures that the, the aspects of the gospel are reflected. So it's, it predicts, it prepares, it reflects our need for grace. And then lastly, um, we see the result of the work of Christ. We get to see the result of the work of Christ, what it does for us from an identity standpoint, 
what it does for us as, as sons and daughters now invited to live in his family, what it does for us to commission us on life, on mission, what it does for us to invite us to serve. And so as we read the scriptures, you're always going to see one of these four things and sometimes four of these four things in text that you read. You're going to see the text predict, prepare, reflect, or be the result of the gospel that's either pointing to or overflowing from Jesus. Does that make sense? So the entirety of the word of God is where we hear what Paul's saying in verse 5, the hope that's laid up for us, the entirety of the word of God, which is hinged on the gospel. Now, this next phrase is actually my favorite phrase in the two verses that we're looking at today, and it says this in in verse 6. So he says, well, I'll, I'll go back. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. The word of truth, the good news of Jesus, which has come to you. If you underline things in your Bible, this would be a good one to underline. Like I mentioned earlier, it's not ironic that we happen to be in a text today that's really going to invite us to see um, the ridiculous and scandalous pursuit of the grace of God. We hear Hallmarks thinks it has like a monopoly on really good like, you know, romance stories and really good love stories, but it's got nothing. Hallmark has nothing on the love story that we see in the scriptures. When I say, think of that, I think of 1 John 4.10. It says this, this is real love. This is real love. Not that you love God, but that he loved you. And he sent his son to be a propitiation, to be a atoning work for your sin. And when we talk, I say this at every wedding that I do, when, when we talk about like awesome proposal stories, you know, and there's always a moment in, in the weddings that I uh, officiate where um, I, have, I have remembered or even like maybe pay homage a little bit to the proposal story because they're all unique and they're all fun and they're all Instagram worthy, right? You know, and we kind of pay tribute to those for a second, but then I always do that and everybody laughs and smiles and oohs and ahs because that's fun to remember and fun to recognize. But then we always transition and say, but the best proposal story didn't happen on a knee, it happened on a cross. The best proposal story in the world wasn't about a man getting on one knee. It was about a man getting on a cross for me and for you. And so this is my favorite part of the text, because we have to ask the question, how has the word of truth, the word of the gospel come to us, the word of God come to us? And I don't mean, how did you first get access to a Bible? Okay, that's not what I'm asking. I mean, how has the truth of Jesus, the word, the person of the word that we discover in John chapter one, where it says in the beginning, we've preached through John already, so you can go back and listen to those. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, and, and he put on flesh and dwelt among us. So the gospel, the gospel of John, the author of John, quickly associates the word of God with the person of Jesus. So how has the person of Jesus chased you down? How has he pursued you? How has he found you? How has he loved you? How has he rescued you? Paul is using some really important language here when he says, which Um, has come to you, talking about the word of truth, the word of the gospel. He's using some really important language because the Colossians need to, the church in Colossian, in Colossae, the Colossian church needs to realize they didn't stumble into the gospel truth. It found them the same way that it found, finds us. And the story that I'm going to use to maybe unpack that the most is a story we're probably familiar with. In fact, it's it's a story that's really highlighted in uh, my favorite Christian book, my non-Bible. My Bible is probably my favorite Christian book, but my favorite non, or my favorite non-Bible Christian book. It's by a guy named Tim Keller. It's a book called Prodigal God. It's probably been the most formative 
um, book of understanding the gospel that I've ever read. In fact, I've mentioned it. Trey reminded me of this. Since he listens, he, he's like super fan. He shows up for two services. It's really because he works here. Um, but he, he listened to the first service and he said, you've mentioned prodigal God a lot from the stage. And so just, it, we'll, we'll, we'll time out on the sermon really quick here. If you've never read Prodigal God and you want to read it, if you're one of the first five people that sends a message in our Commonwealth City Church direct message, we'll have you one next week. Okay, so we'll have you a copy of Prodigal God next week. First five people, quick little, I feel like I'm Matt Hogg right now, you know, like doing a little marketing campaign in the middle here. Um, first five people that send us a direct message, we'll have Prodigal God for you uh, by Tim Keller next Sunday. So Prodigal Son, actually I say that, there might be a snowpocalypse this week. So within a few Sundays, you know, we'll see how deliveries go. Um, prodigal God uh, is really the story of the prodigal son or the lost son from Luke chapter 15. You might have heard this before. Um, you might have heard this story before. And so I want to unpack it for you today. If you want to turn there as a reference, you certainly can, Luke chapter 15. But I'm just going to kind of story tell it to you uh, for the interest of, of moving along and, and having you understand the grace, the truth that has come to you today. So it starts with two sons, right? Two sons of a, of a father. And the youngest son, and I believe if you read the book, Proverbs of God, you actually hear that there are two lost sons. There's the one that is reckless, and then there's the one that is self-righteous, and they both need redemption. But we're going to look today at the younger son who asks for his share of the inheritance right now, which is a fancy way of saying to his dad, I hope you die. Okay, just for the record, if you didn't know that, a son that asked for his inheritance also basically was wishing death upon his father. So it was super disgraceful and super disrespectful. So he asked for his inheritance right now. He wanted half of his money. The father, in his benevolence and compassion, gave it to him. And then what did the son go and do? He squandered it. He lived recklessly. He spent everything. He brought shame to his family and mocked the name of his dad. He blew through all of his money and was left homeless, foodless, jobless, um, with no, uh, no place of safety, no place of security, and not even any really place of sustenance. And so trying to find work, he finally found a job that he could do, which was feeding pigs. And it was at this moment that he's feeding pigs, which again, for a Jewish young man, would have been like one of the most shameful professions that he could have. As he's feeding pigs, um, he has this epiphany that, that he was actually longing to eat what the pigs were eating and that there had to be something better than that. There had to be something better. And so he, he thought to himself, I know what I can do. I can walk shamefully back home. I can work for my dad, not be a son, but be a servant. Work for my dad because my dad's servants are treated better than any opportunity that I've been able to find in this current state of desperation. So I'll go home. I'll earn what I don't have. I'll save a little face. I don't have to be called your son anymore. It's kind of what he's thinking. I can just be one of your servants. Now, there's a point of conflict right here because I think there's a story that if we're not careful, we can see in ourselves today. We can say, okay, parents, we don't want to be an enabler. So, so we need to instill a good work ethic. We don't want to just be handouts. So like, yeah, maybe we'll hire him back. This like this classic like mailroom to, you know, executive office kind of story. We'll, we'll give him a shot in the mailroom. He can work his way up. He can be dedicated. And, 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 you know, like that story actually happens in real life. Like people that squander opportunities and come and they kind of work themselves back to a position. It's like great American individualism. You know, we love those stories of, 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 of working hard and 
picking yourself up by the bootstraps and rising to the top. And we get there by hard work and a good work ethic. And there's a lot of logic in that, right? Taking ownership for our mistakes. There's a lot of logic in that. But is that how the story goes? Luke chapter 15. Did the lesson that the prodigal son learned is that hard work and effort can turn his life around? That's not what he learned, is it? How'd the story go? When the father sees him from a long way off, which implies that he was looking for him, when he sees him, what's it say? That he's frustrated? Does it say that he's disappointed? Does it say that he's angry? Have any of y'all ever made that drive home or that walk home where you like assume how your parents are going to react to your like walk slash drive of shame <laughs> or assume how your roommates might react to that walk slash drive of shame or assume, assume how someone you care about is going to react um, to a place of real pain and, and hurt for you. I don't know what the son was assuming as he came home to his father, but I promise you it wasn't that his father would be motivated not by disappointment, not by frustration, but by compassion. That's what it says in Luke 15, that he's motivated by compassion. And the father seeing his son come home, he doesn't walk, he doesn't send a chariot, he runs to him. He embraces him, he kisses him, he showers him with affection. And I just want to draw out, he didn't do that because he pitied him. He didn't do that because the kid needed help. He did that because he loved him. And then there's this moment where the son kind of has the mic, right? If you've read the story. And he starts to explain himself. Hey, I'm just coming back. I don't have to be your son. I can work in this as a servant. I don't have any expectation. And it's like, have you ever talked to somebody that's like not at all paying attention to what you're saying, but paying attention to, to all the other things? I can totally see the dad being like, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for your self-righteous justification. Get the calf Get the robe, get the ring, get the, get the grill ready, like get the shoes, you know, and he's like kind of, and he just totally ignores it. The dad just totally ignores it. And, and, and he doesn't even acknowledge his big prepared apology or his big self-justification speech. He whips the servants, like gets the servants into gear and, and has them bring and provide the best that they possibly can for this son that's returned home. And the reasoning wasn't because I feel pity. The reasoning wasn't for my reputation. The reasoning was my son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And friends, we have a father that feels the exact same way about us. I don't know what your recognition is of what it means to come to the father, what it means to like right the ship of your life, what it means to... Um, what it means to really walk in confession and repentance. But I think a lot of us think, I think a lot of us think, I think I think, I'll put myself in the crosshairs, that God loves a more improved version of me. I think so. I love a more improved version of me, don't you? Love a more improved, well, not of me, but of yourself, you know? Like, isn't this why gyms are full in January? Because we love a more improved version of us? Isn't this why we change over our wardrobes every season because we love a more improved version of us. Isn't this why we, we do the, like, I love it when my room's cleaner. I love it when my house is cleaner. I love it when I'm in better shape. I love it when I'm in nicer stuff. Like, I love a more improved version of me. And if we're not careful, we will project that to our Father who actually says, you don't have to clean yourself up. 
I don't love a more improved version of you. I don't love a better version of you more than the current version of you. I don't love an innocent version of you or what you think is innocent more than the guiltiest version of you. I don't love a shameless version of you more than an ashamed version of you. And the way that we see that uh, personified is in this story. There's a father that celebrates us, motivated by compassion, not because of our effort, but because of his ridiculous grace. In fact, the father doesn't even allow the son the voice of restitution. He's got it. He's got it covered. He pays the debt. This is the image that we get to see when God pursues us in the exact same grace. He takes the offense of sin on himself. He doesn't whisk it away. He pays for it. He doesn't allow us, if we believe in Jesus, to carry the offense of our own sin. He puts it firmly and squarely on Jesus. So instead of letting the younger son carry the offense, what does he do? He gives him the robe, the ring, the shoes, the feast. He reminds him of his sonship. And if it was a prodigal daughter, he would remind her of her daughtership as well. And so I want to tell you, like, you belong in this story, not because of your effort, not because of your church attendance, not because of your self-righteousness, but because of the incredible work of Jesus. God is delighted in saving you by his grace. In fact, I was talking to Trey between services, and he's like, dude, you should read Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. Fear not. For the Father is, is so excited and joyful to give you the kingdom. Fear not. You belong here. You belong here. Not like just the Commonwealth City Church, but in the family of God, you belong here. Why do you belong here? Because of the word that's come to you. That's why you belong here. How you respond to that, how you believe, how you submit your life to that, that's why you belong here. And then Paul kind of zooms out super quick right here. This is really important for us. He zooms way out and he says, I want to remind you, the same gospel that's come to you, it is indeed doing this in the whole world. It's bearing fruit is increasing and increasing just like it's doing among you the day that you heard it and understood the grace of truth. So Paul gives us this incredible framing right here, which is what we're going to end with. He gives us this incredible framing, and it's this, that the word of God is not just for you, but it's for the whole world. It's for the whole world. In fact, the way that you respond to the grace of Jesus pursuing you has global implications. When we hear phrases like, you should love your neighbor, I think of the people that live next to me on Carlisle Avenue because they're my neighbors. But I have friends. This church has friends that when they hear love your neighbor, they think of neighborhoods they don't live in, not just in Lexington, but in other parts of the world. That's what loving their neighbor means, to go there and to be a neighbor and to care for those people that maybe haven't seen or maybe haven't heard. And so the way that we understand and respond to the grace of Jesus chasing us down and pursuing us has global implications. And let me be honest here. If you're motivated when it comes to your relationship with Jesus by earning it, or you're motivated by guilt of I need this to make some guilt subside in my life, it will never send you like love will send you. If you understand 1 John 4, 10, which we read earlier, this is real love, that he loved you and gave himself as an atoning work for your sin, that will send you far better than just the appeasement of guilt or fear or some earning or effort will send you. So the word of God's not just for you, it's for the whole world. The gospel's not individualistic, it's global. And so we play our part of sounding forth as we join the chorus that the whole world is singing. And we know in Revelation, the whole world's gonna sing someday, worthy is he, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the one to open the scroll. 
and give him all glory, honor, and praise. We've said this before here. We'll say it again. It's a quote by John Piper. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And what we're for is worship all over the planet. So if we're going to be people that show, showcase his grace and show it off, when it finds us, when the word of God comes to us, when it pursues us, when it finds us, we have to also recognize that as we respond to it, it sends us. And some of you, it will send to people that have heard about God a lot. They might, like be, they might even be your blood family. Might send you to your blood family. Might send you to your physical neighbors here in Lexington. Might send you to your coworkers. But for some of you, when you are found by the word of truth, it'll send you to other parts of the world, to people that have never heard. And we want to celebrate both. The question we have to ask is not, what does the word of God do when it comes to us? The question we have to ask is, how do we join in? How do we join in and sounding forth? And so as we come to a close today, I want to just say this as a question. How has the word of God come to you? How has it chased you down? How has it pursued you? How has it invited you? How has it reminded you? How has it bestowed upon you the favor and promise and love of the Father? How has it cherished you? How has it rescued you? One of the things I love is that Paul is congratulating the Colossian church for literally just recognizing that Jesus does all the necessary work. That's what he's giving them a high five over. Congratulations. I've heard you believe in the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you didn't do for yourself. Jesus did. Oh, by the way, congratulations on the word of God coming and finding you. It's like high fives. Congratulations on Jesus being really good at saving and sustaining and sending us. And so how does it find you today? Do you have a moment where it's found you? And I want to ask you this just really bluntly because I don't want to miss a moment to invite some people literally that could be in this room and to this hope that is laid up for us in heaven, to this truth of the gospel, if you don't feel like the love of God has ever pursued you and you've ever come to realize it, you can today. Now, I want to be clear. There's like an enemy that we have. It's like, ooh, Satan. Okay, like there's a devil. And he will be whispering things to you that's like, no, no, no. You don't have to worry about that. Like, don't, you, people will make fun of you. You've come to church like 45 times. You don't have to go receive that. Like, he will totally shame you for pursuing being like known by the Father. He will totally shame you in that. And we just want to silence his mouth when it comes to that stuff. Like, if you're, if you have long been a part of church life, long been a part of ministry events, long been a part of midnight pancakes, but you've never been pursued by the grace of Jesus, let's not wait past today, okay? And let's celebrate that. And the celebration is not, oh my gosh, they finally got it. The celebration is exactly what Luke 15 is. My son or my daughter was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And let's not assume that we're not going to throw a party because heaven, the present current reality of heaven will be throwing a mega one when you repent from routine Christianity and turn to a relationship with a God that pursues you and loves you and hopes to find you today. That's available to you. And so if the word hasn't come to you, maybe today for the first time it lands. And if the word has come for you and has found you and has saved you and has transformed you, then how we live in response as a church, friends, is really, really important. When I was growing up in church, we used to take up an offering, which by the way, we do giving here. It's just all online and all this stuff. And we thank you for those that invest in us here. But when I was a young kid growing up, they would be these like old men that would come and pass these gold plates around. And then they would all like magically end up in the back of the church. 
And then the organist would start this, you know, like this thing called the doxology. I don't know if you know that or not. And then they would all walk up with the plates and put them back on the Lord's Supper table that like was super holy at the big front. And, you know, gold plates, weird table have like a sentence on it that I struggled to understand. Like this do in remembrance of me. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Um, all these things were happening, and then we would sing this song as the offering plates came back down. It was called the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise um, him, all creatures here below. Thank you. I don't have this in the notes. We're running off here. Praise Father, Son, and Heavenly Host, right? Praise, or no, something. All right, Kurt, I'll let you do the worship part. Um, my point is, the word doxology seems like this like weird hymn. The word doxology literally means worship. It means worship. In fact, um, it means glory and worship. Like doxa is the word for glory and to give him glory, to give him worship. In fact, one of my favorite stories um, in, in seminary was like coming across the word doxa and just spending a whole class on like what it means to recognize the glory of God. And so today, Valentine's Day, we celebrate stories of love and pursuit and sacrifice. But let's make the object of our affection and the object of our worship today, Jesus. Let's make it a cross and an empty tomb. Let's recognize a world much, much, more, much more loudly than what Commonwealth can do, but a world that resounds with his glory, that he's worthy. Let's recognize a hope that's laid up for us in heaven. And let's have our doxology moment today. It's not going to be the song that I don't know the lyrics to. It's going to be a song called The Goodness of God that talks about like his love running after us. Let's worship in that today. Let's worship Jesus today. Let's worship the word that chased us down. Let's worship um, the truth that finds you. Let's worship the grace that engulfs you. Let's worship the message that the whole world longs to hear. So let's have our doxology moment, not with bringing the empty offering plates back up, but by worshiping and glorifying the one who, just like Paul said, just like Paul said, has come to get us and to never leave us the same. And so if you have that testimony, that the word of God has come to you and has found you and has pursued you and has transformed you. And remember, we recognize the word of God as Jesus. If you have that testimony, then don't nod along when we sing here in a minute. Choir practice not over yet, right? Don't nod along when we sing here in a minute. Worship the God that said, I'll move heaven and earth to come and get you because my son or my daughter was dead, but now they're alive. They were lost, but now they're found. And if you haven't been found yet by the grace of Jesus, we pray today that it's the day that you're welcomed home for the first time. And in fact, if you want to join us in taking communion in a moment, it's primarily, it's for believers, the people that can profess and believe in Jesus. Um, to come take, eat, and remember and participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, but if you're not a believer today, like we have something a lot better than the little single serving juice and cracker cup. We have Christ himself for you. And we would invite you to know him and to see him and to submit your life to him and to never look back. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for um, being a God that pursues us, that chases after us, um, being a God that we have a testimony of his goodness, your goodness on display in our life. 
Um, Jesus, we just thank you for the hope that you've established for us in heaven. We're thankful that heaven's a reality that we get to live in daily, that we get to usher in daily here. Uh, We hope and pray in Lexington as it is in heaven. But we also just thank you for um, your word and your truth, your grace.